a food that's prized in one region of the world completely misunderstood in another part but have that misunderstanding presented as the truth or the only way to look at that food and that's why I think having diversity is really really important particularly in food media. Hello and welcome to One Bite, a podcast exploring the Australian food system. I'm your host Xavier Callio, a food researcher and sustainability student at the University of Sydney. This series focuses on the impacts of COVID-19 and how we build back better. We will meet Australians working from farm to fork and beyond, gaining diverse perspectives on our food system and how we can shift to more sustainable, resilient and fair food. So grab your knife, fork and spoon and join me as we digest the Australian foodscape, one bite at a time. Hello and welcome to One Bite. Xavier here. Today I'll be speaking with journalist Lee Tran Lam. I'd like to start by acknowledging the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of the lands that I'm on, and pay my respect to their elders past, present and emerging. Lee Tran Lam is a freelance journalist. She has written about food for various publications, including Good Food, Gourmet Traveller, SBS Food, The Sun Herald and The Guardian. She runs the Unbearable Lightness of Being Hungry podcast, presents local fidelity on FBI radio, and is the editor of New Voices on Food. So welcome to One Bite, Lee Tran. It's great to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. I just want to start with what are you really enjoying eating right now? Oh, you know what? Just before this interview, I didn't have a lot of time to properly make a meal. So I just like quickly boiled some pasta and I just added furikake and um Furikake is this Japanese seasoning. It was started, I think, maybe post-war as like a calcium nutritional supplement. But like most things Japanese people do, it's really delicious. And traditionally, it's seaweed, ground up fish, and maybe sesame seeds. But Angie Prendergast-Skeets, who does Angie's Food, she did a really amazing vegan version with a lot of local stuff, because I think she tries to source as much locally as possible. But I think one of the Korean chilies was from Table 181. And I don't know if they actually are still sourcing chili anymore, because one of their founders sadly died earlier this year. So it's kind of special to have that furikake, because, yeah, I don't know if it'll ever re-emerge in that form. So that's what I've been eating. Very good. A bit of a fusion there of your pasta with furikake, is that correct? That's right. So can you briefly tell us about your journey into food? It's kind of accidental in terms of if we're talking about professional journey into food. So in 2007, I was working at an interiors magazine and the team there were really amazing. I worked with such good people. But my day-to-day work wasn't super exciting. I was, you know, fact-checking the prices of taps. So not the most riveting stuff. So I started this food blog called The Unbearable Lightness of Being Hungry as kind of a creative outlet. And also because it was the first time in my life that I had like more money than pizza money. Like it was the first time where I was like, oh, I can spend more than 20 or $30 on some food. And... At the time, me and a few friends would every now and again save up and go to like a pretty fancy restaurant and splurge. And I remember having such an amazing time and I thought it'd just be so sad to just have that like memory wash away. 
So I kind of started that food blog to try and like capture these moments. And particularly because it was a way to highlight how much amazing stuff was happening in Sydney. Because I think at the time there was also this attitude that stuff happened elsewhere. Like if you wanted to do something interesting, you had to go to New York or you had to like move to London. And I thought, why not stay in Sydney and make Sydney awesome and actually highlight what's amazing about Sydney. So that's how I started my food blog. And I did it mainly for fun and for those reasons. But over time, I got a few freelance gigs here and there. And then in 2015, late 2015, so eight years after I started this blog, I actually got to do a one-year job at Good Food, the website, filling in for someone who was on maternity leave. And at the end of that year, I knew I had to find another job. And I've actually never found that job four years later. (laughs) So I've just kind of been accidentally freelancing. So that's my journey. Yeah. And I love that you've uh, described the blog and podcast as a travel guide to your own city. Yeah. I should mention in 2012, I started doing a podcast, which is partly inspired by the fact that there's no stability in media at all. So 2012, I was made redundant. It was like maybe the second or third time I'd been made redundant because that's what happens when you work in media. You just constantly are out of work. And yeah, I just took that opportunity to start my podcast. So now the unbearable lightness of being hungry is more of a podcast just because when you're professionally writing all the time, the last thing you want to do is like update a blog where you're just writing for no money. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a different way of approaching it and it's it's more accessible. I guess through all of your work, you've got quite a good kind of insight into the hospitality industry in Sydney and even some producers I know you've spoken to. So I just wonder if you could reflect on some of the impacts of COVID through those networks, what you've sort of seen and heard. Yeah, it's been a really interesting time for everyone, not just in hospitality, but particularly for hospitality, because in one way, there was always that idea, if you ever needed a job, you work in hospitality, right? And then hospitality was one of the hardest hit industries when lockdown happened, you know, you had all those different restrictions that ultimately you could only serve takeaway in Sydney and in Melbourne they've only just come out of that phase Mm. so it's been a challenging but I think also inspiring time someone who has really inspired a lot of people is Ben Shuri because his restaurant Attica it's a place where people book months and months ahead because it's so internationally renowned He gets a lot of tourists, particularly people who've watched that Ben Shuri episode on Chef's Table, and that's why they're at Attica. And very early when Australia had a ban on tourists from China, Attica started to get affected. And then as Melbourne went into lockdown, there's no way that Ben Shuri could do the thing he was doing before, which was doing a very premium tasting menu format, which on the surface sounds like a lot of money, like, but... As he said before, he thinks Attica isn't an expensive restaurant. It costs a lot of money, but you have to remember that they're using a lot of indigenous ingredients. And a lot of that money is going back to the First Nations communities. So you're 
paying to support those food systems. It's not like paying for expensive caviar or gold leaf or anything like that. Your money actually is part of this important ecosystem. So one of the things he had to do at the beginning was like he opened this bakery and then he's also transitioned to home delivery, like making lasagna. A lot of the time he would actually deliver the food himself. But I think the most important message he had was he spray painted at the start of the pandemic on the walls of his restaurant, uh, never give up. And I think that's really inspired a lot of people. Like I remember interviewing Brent Savage, who runs various restaurants in the Sydney CBD and been really badly affected by the fact that a lot of people are working from home. And yeah, when he was talking about some of the challenges, he also cited Ben's motto of never give up. And it's been amazing to see the industry really do that. And you've got examples like Colombo Social, you know, when they had to lock down, they actually started feeding people who were like in pretty tough circumstances or the Parliament on King, they became a pop-up soup kitchen. So we've seen a lot of that, you know, there's been Neil Perry with his community kitchens feeding like international students who've been you know, really left behind. There have been a lot of groups that have been forgotten by the federal government who chose not to extend a financial hand to, you know, visa holders, international workers, people who've been paying tax for many years and they deserve to be supported as well. So it's been really sad to see those people forgotten but also amazing to see how many restaurants or chefs or restaurateurs kind of, you know, run these initiatives to help these people get fed. So, yeah, I think that's a bit of a snapshot of what's been happening. Yeah, you've touched on so many points there. Um, you know, I think that pivoting is has been such a zeitgeist word and, you know, you sort of mentioned, you know, hospitality really being somewhere you could kind of always get a job, but... The flip side of that is the casualization of the workforce and it's insecure work and then, you know, really tight margins in hospo generally and, and now they can only seat five people or, or that kind of thing. And I'd seen Colombo's social and by June they'd done 13,000 meals. So there has been this real kind of rally by chefs and, and the industry in A, looking out for each other, but B, kind of looking out for others. And you know, one kind of big thing that's been kind of talked about in terms of the pivot is the cost of delivery apps. So people have really jumped on board the couple of big delivery apps everyone knows about, because if you're not on these apps, then you're not getting customers. But I think people don't realize that they take sort of 30%. Yeah, they take massive cuts. And as you mentioned before, restaurants already operate on such thin margins, even thinner margins during a pandemic where restaurants can't operate at full capacity. You know, we have seen some examples of alternatives kind of come out of this time. Businesses that are offering much smaller cuts. I think something like Bopple, it might only charge restaurants 5%. And you've also seen some examples of restaurants, you know, having their own delivery drivers, particularly during lockdown where restaurants were trying to make use of staff and still give their employees jobs when their kitchens couldn't stay open. The thing that 
drives me crazy about the whole phenomenon of like Deliveroo and Uber Eats and DoorDash is none of these companies make money. So I just don't even understand this model that is really brutal for the actual restaurants that produce the food. It's tough going on the drivers who have very little rights. And then these tech companies don't even make any money. So it just feels like this depressing lose-lose situation. And I kind of wonder, do you remember like back in the day, a zillion years ago, when, you know, your local pizza joint would have their own delivery driver? And I kind of wonder, are we maybe going to see a bit of a return to that? Because that kind of made more sense. You know, wouldn't you rather have people with sustainable jobs rather than these you know, really vulnerable delivery drivers who aren't really making any money. There have been some really sad stories about them either being injured or like being killed on the job and not really being taken care of as well. Mm. Yeah, it's been good to see some alternatives presented to this rather broken model during the pandemic. Yeah, it is. And I wondered if you had seen or heard anything about uh, particular restaurants that maybe had a positive COVID case. I do know that after the Apollo had its positive case and Terry Dirac reviewed it straight after, it was just packed. Like it didn't really seem to affect its business. And I hope it means that customers understand that it's not really the restaurant's fault but it's just bad luck if someone happens to come through your restaurant and they do have COVID-19. Yvonne Lamb actually wrote a really good piece about Tan Viet and what they went through when they had a positive case and what it was like from the restaurant side of things. I mean, it's really stressful. You have to do all this expensive cleaning. You know, I really feel for restaurants who are in this situation I know there have been a few reports of perhaps maybe pubs that haven't been following the rules. So I guess I would be a little less sympathetic if someone's breaking the rules or having more people in their venue than needed. But yeah, I'm also sympathetic to the fact you can't really control that much who walks into your restaurant. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I was trying to get a bit of a picture of the hospitality industry now in kind of October 2020 and and how many businesses had closed or been impacted. And it was quite difficult to sort of find that information. But I did find an Ibis World Market Research report that sort of showed restaurant revenue was down 25% all up. And they also sort of spoke about 30 cents in the dollar in hospo and accommodation being international. So that's pretty big. And, And the ABS has found that overall cafes, restaurants and takeaway fell by 6.6% in August, but cafes, restaurants and catering was up to 9.1%. So the way that players within that hospitality industry have been affected is, is quite different. And in terms of the kind of job losses, it's really hard to quantify with JobKeeper because people on JobKeeper are considered employed so they don't they don't really know exactly but in the quarterly change in employment people working zero hours was 10.3% and people from accommodation and food services who were now in a different in- industry was 10.8% and unemployed was 30.8%. Wow. So the unemployment rate generally for the population is at about 7%. Yeah, that's pretty tough. 
And I also imagine, as you say, it would vary, right? Because a cafe in perhaps the suburban area that had a lot of people working from home, they did a bit better than a restaurant in the CBD. Yeah, it's actually been a little bit hard to try and get a fuller picture. You know, this is all very recent. It's all happening now. I actually did a story for the Saturday paper and yeah, I did find getting some of those details hard. Something that really struck me though is I ended up talking to Wes Lambert, who is from Restaurant and Catering Australia. He predicts that 20 to 30% of hospitality businesses will close in the 12 months that follow the first March lockdown. So that's pretty massive, particularly for something that's always been considered a pretty reliable industry and, you know, fuels so much. You think about tourism relies on restaurants and hospitality. If you go to work, you want good cafes near you. It's a place where if you've just turned 15 or if you're in a field with really unstable income, you try and get a job in hospitality. So it's such a fixture in our lives. And for potentially 20 to 30 percent of those businesses to disappear that's pretty stark and I think it won't be an even impact Mm. because obviously Melbourne has had it really hard and more than six months of the year restaurants would have either been closed or operating in takeaway only yeah but if you look at Western Australia or South Australia and potentially Queensland, I think they've had much looser restrictions. I think in Tasmania, you know, particularly Hobart has really relied on a lot of mainland tourists. Mm. You know, I talked to Chris Chappell and he said before the pandemic, 90% of his customers were from Melbourne or Sydney. So imagine like dealing with that when you're in Hobart and then the borders close. Yeah, I actually, I heard Matthew Evans, who has Fat Pig Farm down in Tassie, speaking about, you know, they are generally booked up in advance, they grow all their own stuff. So they had all the projects growing and with almost no warning, it was just shut down. And so they did that pivot and started doing produce boxes for the locals. And now they're trying to kind of build things up a bit and figure out what to plant to grow because it's just so unknown. Yeah, I'm very sympathetic for restaurants trying to like deal with a future that no one really knows. Like no one knows, will this be over in three months or six months? Will we all still be doing this in a year? It's really tough to plan. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, you mentioned that sort of 20 to 30% of business closures and coming from a kind of sustainability point of view, I'm wondering if that has become something that is a bit more talked about in terms of food waste and some of these recipes and restaurants where it's all very much whittling things away to a tiny thing and, and there's a lot of excess produce. So I wonder if the sustainability thing has come up in that conversation at all around this or, you know, using cheaper cuts of meat or or that kind of thing? I feel like in the last few years in general, there have been a lot of stories about businesses or chefs trying to reduce food waste. You know, we've seen things like the war on waste. An organisation like Oz Harvest has been regularly covered given that they do such great work. So I think There have been lots of examples of people kind of putting food waste at the forefront of people's thinking. Mm. But particularly this year, it's been more of an example of chefs needing to be very 
careful with their budgets and maximize every dollar they have. Mm. And for the Saturday paper story I mentioned, I interviewed Paul Carmichael and I asked him, you know, how has the pandemic affected how you approach what you do at your restaurant? And it was interesting to hear him say that I want to make sure that people feel like they got value for money. And he actually puts these really expensive oysters in um, one of the first dishes that served. I was like, oh, wow, that's really like not what I expected because I thought every chef would be like understandably tightening their belt. And he says, no, no, he knows that it's a lot of money to spend on food. So he wants to make sure they get a very satisfying experience. But at the same time, he knows how to save money elsewhere. So he will use like leftover coconut skins and turn that into a dish because that helps him offset the cost of having something more expensive on the menu. And it was interesting hearing him talk about that because he actually said during lockdown, he was basically surviving on like supermarket specials. He had like $50 a week to feed him and a friend. And so he was already in that mindset of, you know, you don't have a lot of money, so you got to make a lot with what you have. Yeah. And, you know, I think that goes back into that thing you mentioned early on about the food ecosystem and these chefs wanting to continue to support their producers. And I think that's really important to to continue those relationships and continue supporting the types of producers we want to see thrive. And if any chefs are, are listening and are interested, the, the Chef's Manifesto is a really great international uh, platform and, and program which really looks at sustainability. You know, I think that producer side as well has been quite heavily impacted. And, you know, if you look at people who generally wholesale, they lost hospitality and airlines and hotels and everything overnight. And I know you spoke with Pelissa. Pelissa Anderson. Yeah. And, and they kind of grow their own stuff for their restaurants in Sydney. Yeah, she had an interesting scenario where, particularly during Sydney's initial lockdown, where all this produce that she would normally grow for really top restaurants, she ended up doing these produce boxes that I think you could pick up from one of her businesses, but also you could just DM her. And if you were nice about it, she would sell you one of these produce boxes. And it'd be really good because it was stuff that was going to go to key. Yeah. And I think that social media thing has been really beautiful. You know, chefs just kind of live streaming, cooking with their kids or whatever. And, and I did want to talk to you about what's been happening in food media during COVID and, and how's that changing? Yeah, it's been an interesting time for food media for various reasons. I think one upside is you've seen a lot of media support, especially trying to raise awareness of, you know, these side businesses or letting people know about things like Newtown Blessing Box, which is kind of like a community initiative, which came out of trying to help out the local asylum seeker centre and the fact that so many people had lost jobs and they needed extra help of, you know, having a, a local pantry that was just donating food that they could just pick up without feeling any kind of judgment or stigma about it. I think a lot of the schemes we've talked about have had really supportive media coverage. So I think we've kind of seen a lot of that and we've seen less of, you know, back in the day you might see like a really mean restaurant review go viral or something like that. I feel like the tone this year has been 
obviously more supportive because everyone just wants the hospitality industry to survive. You want people to keep their jobs. If we want to get like really inside food media itself and media in general, because of the economic downturn, that has really affected advertising revenue. And then that has really affected media because that's what pays for people's jobs. So unfortunately, you might have noticed like a lot of sections or magazines you loved suddenly got a lot smaller and that really restricted what could be covered because there was no budget to commission someone to write about this or that. So personally, as a freelancer, I lost a lot of regular work, which was, you know, tough, but I recognise that people have done it way tougher than me during this pandemic. But it has also affected the kind of coverage that we've seen. And perhaps this is a segue into talking about diversity in food media, which is something I've been a bit focused on the last few months. Yes. So, so yes. We couldn't talk about 2020 without talking about racism because racism has really been brought to the fore in the US and in Australia. And I know something that you've worked on and spoken about quite a lot is food racism and particularly the kind of stories we tell and and why they're problematic. Yeah, it's something I've been thinking about for a little while, but obviously it really came to the fore this year, particularly after the tragic death of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter protests. And there have been a lot of conversations about representation and diversity this year. So it's a very complicated topic. So I'll do my best to try and do it some justice. It's interesting that we were talking about Paul Carmichael because I was on a panel with him last year and the panel was about diversity in food media. And it was just really illuminating to hear him talk about it. And I think this is why it's important to make sure you include voices of people who have different experiences because a lot of the media is really white and, you know, a lot of those people go to private schools or they've had really privileged backgrounds and the media should reflect how wide-ranging its population is. But Paul talked about how he was a judge for the World Restaurant Awards in Paris and he talked about how complicated it is to judge things and he was giving the example of, I think, Tanviet in Cabramatta, which is, you know, a much loved institution, but it's not an expensive restaurant. And, you know, how do you compare that to something like Mamafuku Siebo, where you do pay like hundreds of dollars for a meal? You know, how does anyone judge these two different things? And he talked about being at the World Restaurant Awards, where he said he grew up in Barbados with not a lot. And then one of the other judges was this rather affluent woman from Italy. He talked about how there was slavery in his family just one generation ago. You know, how do you kind of agree on what is a good restaurant when you've had such different life experiences and what you think is a good restaurant would possibly be quite different? He also talked about how when he walks into a room, every person is either white or Asian and he is the only black person. So there's still like a lot of diversity that needs to happen. So those are a few of the things he talked about at this panel. But I really appreciated hearing that, right? Because we need to hear those things. And then unfortunately, 
you know, there are a lot of problems with media. It's an industry that's faced a lot of instability, like job instability, financial instability. So I understand why no one wants to enter the media if that's like, (laughs) those are the circumstances uh, that you face. But then it also means that, unfortunately, the only people in a position to enter the media are from like wealthier, privileged, often white backgrounds. And then if the people are reporting on stories are all from the same background, how can you get perspectives that reflect the population? Yeah. You know, I think all of this really blew up around food media in in late June with a New York Times article on Thai fruit. Yeah, what a story. (laughs) Do you want to give just a brief overview of that article and some of the responses? Yes. Okay, so I want to say first up, the New York Times does some of the best food reporting, right? So I don't want this to be like misconstrued as I hate the New York Times or anything like that. You know, they do really great progressive stories. But this particular story, which was done by their Asian correspondent, and my concern is not her cultural background. It's more that she perpetuated this stereotype or this very narrow perspective that unfortunately happens a lot. So she wrote about supposed Thai fruit. And, you know, these fruits can be found in lots of Asia. But she talked about the deep, dank rot of durian. She talked about um, Rambutan and compared it to the coronavirus, which I think is a bit of an issue when there's been such a documented rise in attacks on people of Asian appearance because of the COVID-19 pandemic. There was a novelist called Monique Trung, and she said, why not just call it the Kung Flu of fruits, you know? So this story just unfortunately just perpetuated a lot of stereotypes that are basically, if you boil it down to, it's like, oh, Asian food, it's so weird, it smells, it's hard to deal with, ugh, gross, right? And I just couldn't believe in 2020 we're still having stories that are like this. And if you want to, like, look at the flip side of this, and I think this is why it's important to have diversity, is if you zoom out, the idea that durian is this stinky fruit that smells of death, That is not how a large part of the world looks at durian. In Asia, durian is considered the king of fruit. A year ago, at a durian festival, someone paid $50,000 for one durian. The perspective of a lot of people in Asia is that durian is really amazing. You pay a lot of money for durian because it's valued. And then to kind of project what was in this New York Times article as fact, when it's really opinion, it's really one person's opinion, but it's also something that's just been repeated over and over. Like, And I just think it's really unfair to have a food that's prized in one region of the world, completely misunderstood in another part, but have that misunderstanding presented as the truth or the only way to look at that food. And that's why I think having diversity is really, really important, particularly in food media. Yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of this ties into this sort of post-colonial thinking. And there was an academic from the University of Sydney, Dr. Jane Chi Huen Park, who talked about, you know, seeing non-white food as exotic and we hold this kind of European Western food as, as this kind of art, but anything that's non-white is is culture. And then this binary is then 
as you say, perpetuated in the food media. And another analysis of the New York Times food section found that of the 263 recipes listed as Chinese, only 10% were actually written by Chinese writers. Yeah, that's pretty wild, isn't it? And not to say that if you are non-Chinese that you can't write about Chinese food in a thoughtful and respectful way. Like, I don't want people's takeaway to be like, you can only write about the food that represents your heritage, because I think that also, in a way, is very limiting. I believe that for the most part, anyone can write about anything as long as they do it with cultural context, with respect, with open-mindedness. But yeah, there is, there's quite a lot that still needs to be achieved. I think the fact that this is even being discussed, that it's even being reported on, is like one really important step. I think one of the most important articles that has been published in the last five years on food media would be the one done by Colin Ho and Nicholas Jordan for the ABC Online. David Chang has also talked about this. Why do people pay a lot of money for pasta, but they won't pay a lot of money for noodles? Yeah, that's why you do need people talking about this stuff and demystifying it and debunking it. Yeah, and there's a book called The Oldest Food on Earth by John Newton about Indigenous ingredients and Indigenous foods. And and he really talks about food racism and the rejection of foods specifically because they're considered Indigenous and how that kind of post-colonial gatekeeping is just continuing to happen and And if it's not addressed, then we can't shed light on it and and try and shift it to more culturally appropriate conversations about food because good food is subjective. Yeah, totally. And isn't it interesting how my first encounter with Indigenous foods was Bush Tucker Man, which is, you know, a white dude going around talking about bush foods. And there was unfortunately like a level of like I guess cultural cringe and it's really interesting that I think probably the most influential conversation about indigenous foods started when Rene Redzepi a Danish chef came Mm. to the Sydney Opera House Mm. and asked why chefs in Australia were not using the food in their backyards Unfortunately, sometimes it takes either an outsider or a white person to say these things. And then all of a sudden, it's like indigenous ingredients are cool now, even though like they should have been cool for a very long time. But there was just a lot of prejudice against using them or they were misconstrued. And thankfully, now we're having a conversation about where these ingredients come from, right? Because... Only 1% to 2% of those companies are Indigenous Mm. owned. And so there's more awareness. And I think there is a company called, is it the Bush Food Alliance? I think they just popped up this week on my Instagram. Yeah. Yeah, Bingen. I think, you know, you make a, a really interesting point about kind of outside people coming in. And, you know, I don't know if it's this Australian tall poppy thing or if it's much more nuanced. And obviously there's definitely a race issue in there, but needing someone else to represent this in a way that makes it palatable to the majority of people. And I watched a panel recently and and they had three great Indigenous people talking about kind of food for the future. And 
their chef that they got to cook with native ingredients was Callum Han from MasterChef. Oh, huh. Interesting choice. You would think that you would go to an Indigenous chef Mm. to showcase. Yeah. Can I just backtrack a little bit um, to talking about how important it is for like supporting Indigenous businesses? And I've just finished a story for SBS Food about a company called Chocolate on Purpose, which is run by a Wiradjuri woman, Fiona Harrison. And she talks about how she uses indigenous ingredients in her chocolate. And she says for her, chocolate feels like a step towards reconciliation. And how particularly when she had people coming to markets and she'd be selling them chocolate, like chocolate was just this really easy way to get this conversation started about reconciliation. So she would say, for instance, when someone would would ask her, oh, you know, what is Kwandong? She would say, oh, you know, Kwandong was used by First Nations people for lowering blood sugar. And what's ironic is a lot of First Nations communities have lost that connection with bush foods and diabetes is prevalent in Indigenous communities. And then she would use that as a segue to talk about closing the gap on health issues. And I think that is another reason why it is important that we have this range of voices talking from these perspectives rather than someone else who might not have that connection with First Nations culture and they just might see native ingredients as this shiny toy that they get to play with. Yeah. And to talk about this from a food media perspective, you actually also need these platforms. So I did that story for SBS Food and they just have a really great commitment to covering stories that have a multicultural perspective that are about communities but particularly they have a really good commitment to covering stories about First Nations chefs or restaurateurs or businesses or aspects of food culture from an Indigenous point of view. The other side of it is also we need readers to read this stuff because we can't do this in a vacuum as well. So as much as we talk about a food ecosystem, we also have to talk about a media ecosystem And, you know, if people are only clicking on recipes for, I'm just trying to think of the widest food possible and I just don't know what that is. I don't know, fairy bread. Lamingtons. Let's go with (laughs) lamingtons. (laughs) If those are the only things that get clicks, we we need people to like want to read about these things as well. And on that, through all of this stuff, you've actually set up a platform which is diversity in food media and you're about to publish an anthology. Yeah. So diversity in food media actually started after the unfortunate death of George Floyd and Black Lives Matter was really at the forefront of what everyone was thinking. And I had a conversation with Andrew Levins, who is another freelance journalist, and he was really upset about, you know, who are the new voices coming through? And we knew that, unfortunately, the situation was there were just no budgets. So you couldn't really go to an editor and say, 
hey, here are like 10 really amazing upcoming writers from diverse backgrounds that you should publish because like just no one had any money. So we started thinking about, well, what can we do to try and encourage some level of change as like freelancers who have no money, (laughs) you know? And he was doing really great things of like trying to like mentor upcoming writers. And I thought one thing I could do was start an Instagram account that profiled some of these people and hopefully some editors would follow. And that's like just a really easy thing for people to do, right? And then I talked to some kind press who are kind of like a community-led, crowdfunded publisher. So they started at the beginning of lockdown too to help out local restaurants that were doing it tough. They put up the idea for a book and if 100 people pre-order it in a fortnight, then it goes ahead and it gets printed. So... I came to them with this idea of like, I want to like give a platform to all these people who aren't getting printed or that they're not getting heard or they don't have the experience, but they've got the talent. So I think in July, I went to them with the idea. August, we opened for submissions. September, submissions closed. And then I started shortlisting and editing, which is pretty amazing because a lot of books take like one or two years. So to get this done in a few months is pretty amazing. The people who are in it, I'm just so inspired and really happy that I got the chance to give them a platform. There's 10 people. I probably don't have time to talk about everyone. So I'm just going to highlight Ahmad Hakim. He is originally from Iran. They lived around this reeded lake and he had this beautiful description of how his mother would take the scarf off her head and drag it through the lake and pull it up and the scarf would be full of tiny fish. And he would talk about all these like great memories he would have of, oh, you know, his mum cooking, I think, sweet dates and like fresh buffalo butter. And then unfortunately, so he had to flee Iran. He went to Syria and then he escaped to Jordan and thankfully he got accepted as a refugee and made it to Australia. Uh, he ended up in Adelaide where he started working as a chef. And he talks about all of this and I just feel like this is who we need to hear from, right? Mm. <laughs> we don't really need to hear from like another celebrity chef, you know what I mean? Yes. This is what we should be talking about, especially in Australia where we really silence Asylum seekers, it's really hard for reporters to get to those offshore detention centers. And when we spend billions of dollars locking up these people for, what, seven years now, people who haven't committed a crime, they just want a second chance at life. And, you know, Mm. we need to be talking Mm. about this stuff. We should not be looking away. Absolutely. And have you had sort of a good response? Yeah, yeah. So I think... You know, we're we're probably not going to sell a million copies. We're not going to, you know, this is not the Michelle Obama memoir. You know what I mean? But I hope it sells well because I hope that these contributors are widely read because they're really talented. Some of them, like Rasheen Cole, she's only been writing for six months and I think she's so talented. She's a chef. And then the pandemic hit. And as a chef who always thought she would be able to get a job because there's always demand for chefs. She ended up doing two cookbooks in quarantine called the Isolation Cookbook. But it was really great to have her talk about what it was like to move to Australia from Singapore and experience this very different food culture. And then how she is finally um, (laughs) 
actually come to embrace what she calls the beige food of Australia. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good, it's a very good description of it. And I've ordered my copy, oh, so I you. look forward to getting that. So we've covered quite a lot of ground today, but I just wondered if there's one thing that people could do that would really make a difference coming out of this kind of COVID situation. Yeah, there are so many things I could say. And I also know that people are in very different situations. There are people who have been really hard hit. So it's really hard to ask someone in that situation to do something. I feel like the best advice is from Ben Shuri, the never give up advice, because I feel like whatever your situation is, that can help you. And I totally understand if people have gone through tremendous hardship and it's just really hard to get up each day or you wonder what's the point. And, you know, I've had that, those situations. Like I remember when I just had back-to-back job losses and I think Ben Shuri's advice, never give up, is really good because it galvanizes you and it reminds you you have some agency even though there are a lot of things that are out of our control right now and mentally I think a lot of people have been doing this where you just want to like fast forward to six months from now or like a year from now when this is all over right all the hard stuff is over and Ben Shuri said something really important to me he said I don't want to look back at the last six months of my life and feel like I wasted it because it was too hard to deal with and I was like oh my god he's so right and that attitude of like every day making the most of it even if it's some tiny thing you know that small win that you get every day that's really important so I think that I just want to pass on Ben Shuri's message of like not giving up and making the most of the time you have yeah and just doing the best you can every day with what you've got and reaching out for support if you need it so thank you so much Lee Tran, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Uh, that brings us to the end of One Bite for this week. So I just want to thank our listeners. I'm your host, Xavier Callio, and I've been talking to Lee Tran Lam about the impacts of COVID on hospitality, about food racism, and the need for diverse voices in food media. So you can find more information in the show notes or head over to the website at onebitepod.com. And Lee Tran, do you want to spruik some links? Oh, great. Yes, thank you so much. And thank you for having me. The book, if you want to find out more about it, is at somekindpress.com. And the book is New Voices on Food. So it's available to order right now. Diversityinfoodmedia.au is the Instagram. And The Unbearable Lightness of Being Hungry is my podcast. And coming up, I do have an interview with Paul Carmichael, which I'm really, really happy to be featuring because I've been trying to make that happen for more than a year. So that's one you can look out for. Yes. And I'll link to all of those. And I must say the unbearable lightness of being hungry is probably the best name for anything (laughs) food related ever in the universe. Thank you. Thank you. So if you do like the show, please do subscribe, rate and review because it does help other people to find us. See you next time. Bye.